Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this morning is uh, The Power of His Resurrection. The Power of His Resurrection. We, I said yesterday was, was in a sense part one uh, and today we're talking about the power of His resurrection and tomorrow we're going to conclude and uh, and we're going to go to this verse in a minute where the title of this uh, study comes from, the power of His resurrection. But before we do, I just want to share a few thoughts uh, regarding the resurrection. And I have found in my experience, the resurrection is one of those doctrines, one of those beliefs that uh, don't seem to get preached about a lot. Generally, I don't hear many sermons about the resurrection. And perhaps the reason is a subconscious one in that we think if perhaps we emphasize the resurrection, that's indirectly giving credence to uh, what the Sunday keepers go on about. And so we just won't emphasize it too much. You know what I'm talking about? Because we focus on the Sabbath. And somehow because Sunday keepers uh, justify their keeping of the day based on the resurrection, so we somehow might feel that emphasizing the resurrection is indirectly helping the enemy, so to speak, or the opposite idea that we believe in. I don't know what the reason is exactly, but the resurrection is something that uh, is so basic and so common, I don't think I need to ask for a show of hands if you believe in the resurrection. I think everybody believes in the resurrection, so we're kind of like, well, we all believe it, we all know it, Let's talk about other things. So today I'm going to talk about the resurrection, not other things. And, and hopefully, as we look at this topic, we will see its connection with righteousness by faith. Now here's a thought that we might have not considered. What's the resurrection got to do with righteousness by faith? And uh, is there a link? And if so, what is it? And how does the, the doctrine of the resurrection, the truth, really, of the resurrection, practically help us today? in our walk day by day. You see, generally we think of these uh, truths and these doctrines as, as concepts that we mentally ascend to. Yes, I believe in that one, and, and that one, and that one, and that one. And we fail many times to see the practical application of these doctrines in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, that might not be the case for you, and, and if it isn't, praise the Lord, but generally that's how it is. Our, our beliefs are a set of ideas and concepts that exist in the realm of theory. And perhaps that's why we don't talk about something that we all assented to too much. Anyway, that's just uh, some thoughts as far as the resurrection is concerned. Let's go to our Bibles. Let's look at this verse where this uh, title comes from. And we'll uh, look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And our hope this morning is to shine some biblical light on this topic. And hopefully for us to see it in a fresh light. That's really the plan. Philippians chapter 3, reading verses 9 and 10. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Yesterday we talked about that I may know him. So today we're talking about the power of his resurrection. Paul wanted to know these things. And in knowing Christ, it seems like that was just not enough. He doesn't just say that I may know him, period. He says that I may know him and then he wanted to know something else. He wanted to know what he calls here the power of his resurrection. Do we know what that means? Do we know what the power of the resurrection means in our lives? That's what I want to explore a little bit today. And tomorrow we'll look at the fellowship of his sufferings. And all these three things are linked, really, because if you look at them, they actually generally come in that order. Knowing Christ leads us to knowing the power of his resurrection, and that leads us and prepares us to be fellowship, to have fellowship of his sufferings, or uh, to understand what that means. The power of his resurrection, just what does that mean? We want to explore that. And, and in trying to explain the power of his resurrection, Paul kind of, uh, he, words sometimes fail. And, uh, and he tries to do that in a number of places. One such place is in Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll just look at an example of what this power of the resurrection looks like. 
And that will help us appreciate a little bit what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 1. Reading verses 19 down to 21. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 19 down to 21. Paul here writing, speaking about the same thing. He says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? This is God's power. To us word who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That gives us a bit of a picture. The power of the resurrection. That's the greatness of God's power. It says it elevated and uplifted Christ. Not only did it restore him from death, but it also uplifted him to such a high position that he describes there at the last verse in verse 21. Far above everything. Not only in this world, but in the world that is to come. And then Paul says something at the beginning of verse 19, and I want, don't want us to miss. He says, the greatness of this power is to us word. That means that he wants to illustrate this, not so that we can appreciate what happened to Christ, but for our benefit. He says, this power, and I just want to tell you what this power is like. It elevated Christ above all these things. This power is to us word. And then he says, he gives the condition. What are the next words? To us word, who believe. So what do we believe? Do we really believe? Do we understand? Do we exercise? Do we partake of this greatness of this power of the resurrection? And then in the end there, it says, it lifted Christ above all principality and power and might and dominion. What's all that? What are the principalities and powers and mights and dominions? What's that referring to? All other powers, okay, all government. Okay, a little later in the book, Paul says something that might give us a hint as to what he's talking about. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers of darkness and all these things and hosts of wickedness and high places. What's he referring to? Spiritual powers. The spiritual hosts of Satan. So Paul here is saying, listen, in the resurrection, it elevated Christ to such a point, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, far above all the enemy, spiritual enemy, seen and unseen, the physical enemies in this world, but also the battle is really with who? Satan and his angels. That's what the controversy is all about between uh, Christ and Satan. And so he's saying the power of his resurrection is so great, it elevated him far above these spiritual enemies. Well, some of them might say, well, I thought he always was far above, and he was. But there's something that the resurrection did. And that's what I want to explore a little bit. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Here we come to a puzzling verse. What does this mean, that Christ has been elevated far above all principality and power and might and dominion? Philipp, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> and this verse, I'm going to read it a little bit in context. As you find the verse, 1 Peter chapter 3. I won't get to get you the verse yet. We're going to read this together, so just hold on. Uh, this is one of, one of the most puzzling verses in the New Testament. Uh, I don't know if you've thought of that or not. We'll read it, and then you might think, oh, yeah, it's that verse. Yeah, I think it's puzzling too. Let's read it together, beginning with verse 17. 1 Peter 3.17 says, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And here's verse 19, that's the key verse. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Have you ever wondered what verse 19 means? Where it says, by which also he, that is Christ, went and preached unto the spirits in prison. I'm not going to do a quiz and ask you what the meaning of the verse is, but the general meaning is there's two popular uh, explanations, one more popular than the others. We'll start with the more popular one. The one that most Christendom subscribes to is the belief that when Christ died for three days, he went into hell and he preached to all the dead people there. You familiar with that? 
Anyone from a non-Adventist church background, you'd be familiar with that because it's in the creed where Christ descended into hell and he went and he preached for three days to all these poor, lost, wicked people that had died that are the spirits in prison. Now, as, as Adventists, I think obviously that's not a right explanation because the dead don't know anything. They're not aware. So the, so the more popular Adventist explanation or the traditional Adventist explanation is this is actually referring to uh, Christ's spirit that preached through Noah before the flood to all these people in those days. You're familiar with that explanation? Okay, some of you might be, some might not. These are popular explanations, but uh, the problem I find with these explanations is simply this. They do not fit with the context. There are some major flaws in those explanations, and we'll explore that just a little bit, because we want to appreciate what the meaning of the verse is, because it has everything to do with what we're talking about, because he's referring to the resurrection right there at the end of verse 18. Just before verse 19, he says that Christ, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, or resurrected, or brought back to life by the Spirit. And we want to explore the meaning of that. There are a few assumptions made that lead people to misunderstand the meaning of this text. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll find the answer for ourselves. But what is this preaching to the spirits in prison? And more importantly, what does it have to do with us experiencing suffering? Because that's the context, isn't that right? The verses we just read earlier, he says it's better that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And then he says, because Christ was put to death in the flesh, he suffered, being innocent. He was put to death in the f flesh, quickened by the Spirit. He went and preached to these spirits in prison. So there has to be some connection between us experiencing suffering and this preaching to the spirits in prison. And all these popular explanations, like I mentioned, they are not connected. They are disjointed. So what does this mean? Now tomorrow we're going to be exploring uh, suffering a little bit in more in detail. But uh, first of all, we need to identify who are these spirits. There are a few elements in this verse we need to understand. Who are these spirits? If we identify who the spirits are, it will help us understand the verse. And the most popular explanation, like I said, both explanations consider that spirits is referring to people. Whether they be dead people or alive people, but it is people. That's the uh, popular explanation. But the problem with that is this. When we look up the word spirits in the Greek, we find that it comes from the root word pneuma. And of course, I think we might be familiar with that. Pneuma, which is spirit, also means breath or wind. Interestingly enough, this word is never, ever in the Bible used to refer to human beings. So on what basis do we read that verse and read spirits to refer to human beings? That's an assumption. The word spirits is actually used to refer to a number of beings, none of them human. For example, the Bible talks about the angels as ministering spirits. It also talks about people who are possessed, and it says they had an unclean spirit. It talks about God having a holy spirit. And it talks about people having a spirit, that when the spirit departs from us, we die. But it never refers to human beings as spirits. So we know what the verse is not referring to. So what could it be referring to? Of course, it's not referring to God or His Spirit because it says here uh, that these spirits were at one point disobedient. Isn't that right? In the next verse, it says in verse 20, who were aforetime disobedient or sometime disobedient. So these spirits are really angels. That's the, that's the, and the Bible also says in Hebrews, who maketh His angels spirits and His ministers flames of fire or flame of fire. And uh, which kind of angels were disobedient? Fallen angels. The disobedience. Yeah, that's right. The fallen angels. So it's not good angels. It's fallen angels. So that's as far as spirits is concerned. If we want to be consistent as to how the scripture uses and describes uh, this, this term and, and the description there. Well, the next question naturally arises. Okay. What about them being in prison? What's this prison all about? Because the verse says he preached to the spirits in Prison. What is this prison? Let's go to Second Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> Are they in prison? Second Peter chapter 2. 
Second Peter, not far from where we are. Chapter 2, verse five, uh, 4. It says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto the judgment. And then he talks about that he did not spare the old world and Noah and so on, uh, except Noah. Uh, it says here that these fallen angels were cast down to hell. Isn't that right? What does hell mean? The grave. Okay, the grave. Correct. But the Greek word for hell here is a different word to the grave or Hades, the Greek one. I don't know why they translated it as hell here. It's actually only used once, this instance, in the whole New Testament. And the Greek there is Tartarus. Now you might be saying, well, what's that mean? It doesn't mean anything to me. Well, if you look it up uh, in the dictionary, it actually means a place of restraint. A different dimension or something. Well, there's all kinds of ideas. It just means a place of restraint. So these fallen angels, the Bible says that God cast them down to Tartarus, a place of restraint. And then it goes on to say that they were delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. What picture do you get in your mind when you hear chains? A prison, right? You know, a prisoner is chained. So now it doesn't mean they're literally chained. Okay, I don't want you to, to, to think that. But they are in a circumstance. They are in a situation where they are represented as being in prison. There's some restraint. That's what prison is. It's a restraining. It's, it's a mechanism of restraining criminals. There is some kind of a restraint. Let's go to Jude chapter 1. Only chapter there. Incarcerated. That's right. Incarcerated in the abyss. That's another, another explanation or another meaning. Deeper aspects of the meaning. So you with me so far? Okay. That's good. Jude chapter 1. Verse 6. We're just doing a simple Bible study here, following uh, you know, the, the line of thought that Peter is presenting, just deciphering it, allowing the Bible to do so. Uh, verse 6, right? And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Same thought, isn't that right? So the demons and, and, their, and their boss and the devil are reserved in everlasting chains, a symbolic picture of their condition under restraints. That's why Peter says that they are in prison. Okay? So these demons are bound in prison, awaiting judgment. They are judgment bound. And they know that. Now the final aspect is this. And, and like I mentioned, uh, they, are, they are restrained. In other words, they are not free to do as they please. Praise God for that. We don't know what that means. If, we if, if demons had their way, none of us would be here. If the devil had his way, not one of us would be here. There is a restraint. And we see that in a number of places. In the story of Job is a very good example. Where uh, the devil could only go as far as God allowed. And no further. There were restraints put on him each time in that story. You remember that? And so if the devil had his way, he just wanted to snuff out Job like that. Isn't that right? And so the same thing applies for us. There is a restraint. Praise God for that. And that restraint is represented as a prison. Okay, final aspect. And I'm sure you might be thinking, okay, we found spirits. We found prison. What about preaching to them? What's the point of preaching to demons? Isn't that right? There is no point to preaching to demons. Let's look at that just a little bit. Because that's what the verse says. By which also... Christ went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, when we say preached, what's the first thing you think of? What is preaching? Preaching is to tell what? The good news, the gospel, amen. But the interesting thing, Peter, in that verse, does not tell us what was preached. Does he? It just says he went and preached. We assume straight away that he preached the gospel, but it doesn't say gospel. That's an assumption that is not in the text. We have to stick to what is in the text. As a matter of fact, if we look up that word preached, you will, we will find that it is used in the preaching of the gospel. 
when the gospel is identified as what is being preached. But actually the word on its own means to proclaim or to herald or to announce or to make a public proclamation. You with me? And Peter does not specify exactly what was proclaimed or announced to these demons in prison by Christ. And that's what I want to explore a little bit. But the verse previous to that does so. Let's go back to Peter. I want us to look again. First Peter chapter 3, just one more time. Now that we found some of the meanings, and then the previous verse starts gaining some more importance. First Peter chapter 3. And let's look at verse 18. <clears throat> what was announced or proclaimed? Verse 18, it says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. That's the resurrection, right? Resurrected by the Spirit. By which also, so by which what? What's the thing that he just finished saying? The resurrection, which occurred by the Spirit. He was raised by the Spirit. By which resurrection also, he went and did what? Announced to the demons in prison. So in other words, brothers and sisters, what Peter is saying is this. Christ's resurrection made an announcement, a public declaration to all the demons, all the hordes of darkness that were in prison awaiting judgment. It made an announcement. What announcement would the resurrection of Christ make to them? Game over. I won. Amen. You've lost. Isn't that right? A public announcement. He didn't have to say, I won. Now, he didn't go and say anything. What did the announcing is the resurrection itself. The resurrection went as... A, mega, a, blow horn, a big loudspeaker through all the ranks of the demons. That news traveled as a public declaration to all of them in prison. Your doom is certain. Christ has won. The evidence was the resurrection. That's what the immediate context reveals. And uh, in other words, that's where uh, Peter says, you know, when Christ was resurrected and when he ascended to heaven, that meant something to Satan and his angels. Let's continue down in the same chapter. Let's look at how that thought continues. Verses 21 down to the end of the chapter. Just two verses there. First Peter 3, 21. The like figure whereunto even the baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Does that follow in the same line of thought? Yeah. So you see how it disrupts the harmony of the passage when we start thinking that Christ went and preached to dead people or that Christ was preaching in the time of Noah, even though he was doing that, of course, there's no question about that. But that's not what this verse is concerned with. This verse is concerned with something that happened in the spiritual realm. This verse is concerned with something that occurred, that was announced to all the demons, that has to do with encouraging us who go through suffering. Because that's the context, isn't that right? We can't forget that. It's important to keep that in mind. So Christ's ascension to the throne of God proclaimed his victory over death and over Satan and over all his demons. And that's vic that victory is our victory as well. Uh, I just, uh, yeah, I think we, we covered that. Are you with me so far? Is that clear? I don't need to, to clarify anymore. Okay, let's go to uh, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And before we read this verse, I just want to make sure the connection is clear as far as the suffering, because when we're familiar with something, when we're familiar with reading the verse in one way, it's, it's a bit hard to see it in a different way, I realize. But Peter is basically telling people, listen, you're going through suffering. It's better if you go through suffering for well-doing than for evil-doing. Look at Jesus. He didn't do anything wrong. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was quickened by the Spirit. He was resurrected. And his resurrection was a proclamation of victory among all the ranks of the devil 
who are the ones who cause suffering. And he was elevated and risen high above all these, all these principalities and powers and all things. Therefore, don't worry too much when you experience some suffering. Our commander has beaten them. That's his point. It's an encouraging thought. That's the point he's trying to bring across. But let's look at the extent of that. Colossians chapter 2. And we will look at verse 14 and 15. Colossians 2. Very familiar verses, but I want to look at something else here. Verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. That is what happened on the cross. What does the word spoiled mean? Verse 15 is where I want to focus. What's the word spoiled mean? Taking stuff. Taking stuff. Okay. Spoil is, is the picture you get when, when one conquering army uh, defeats the other and they take their spoils. Right? So this is the picture I get when I read this verse. Uh, Christ spoiled principalities and powers. What's the principalities and powers? The demonic forces, the enemies of Christ, something in the death and obviously the resurrection, it's, it's all a package, of Christ, did something to the, to the demonic hosts. Not only that, but it says he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. To, to make a show openly of someone, what's that mean? To publicly humiliate them. To publicly, openly show that they have lost. Open, show, publicly. You see, there is something here that we want to explore. And, uh, and generally, when, when we look, think of spoils, uh, the picture that comes to my mind, and, and I think you, you, you'll, you'll uh, if we use that as illustration, you'll see what we're saying. Uh, for example, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Babylon, right? Uh, came and besieged Jerusalem, right? In the reign of King Jehoiakim, and he, and he took them captive to Babylon. Now, when he took them captive to Babylon, he would have taken all these captives and Daniel and, and all these boys would have been there. Not only did he take uh, people captive, but he also took the articles of the sanctuary. And you can just imagine the, the return of King Nebuchadnezzar and the triumphal entry as he came in through the gates of Babylon, bringing in the trophies and the spoils of the defeated Jews. And as they marched there through the main street, through, under, through the gate of Ishtar, and all these captives and all these articles of the sanctuary of the God of the Hebrews as evidence and tokens that Nebuchadnezzar had defeated the enemy. That's, that's what would have happened. You, you see the picture. So that's, that's, that's the idea I get here when, when I read that these demonic powers were spoiled. Now let's look at another verse in the New Testament where Jesus speaks in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Now as we turn there, I want us to uh, keep something in mind. The, the point of Peter's message was to encourage people who are going through suffering. Uh, I don't think I need to ask you to put your hand up if you have suffered, if you've gone through suffering, or you might be going through suffering right now, suffering, distress, and concerns. These things cause fear. Isn't that right? Worry. Stress is fear. That's a form of fear. What Peter is basically saying to the believers there, he's saying, listen, I want you to know something. The resurrection of Christ is the antidote for that fear. Now, I don't know if you're seeing it or not, but I'm going to come back to that. I just want us to keep that in mind. That, that's what Peter is dealing with. As we go to other verses, I don't want us to lose, to lose sight of that. So we're talking about spoils here. Luke chapter 11. Look at verse 21. Luke 11. Verse 21, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in place, in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. Who's Jesus talking about? Who's the strong man? The devil. Who's keeping his palace and his goods are in peace. Isn't that right? And it says, in order for the strong man to be defeated, someone stronger than him has to come. And he has first to overcome him. And the other passages say that he will bind him. And then he takes his spoils and he divides them. Jesus is here speaking, you know, uh, in symbolic language about the contest between him and Satan. And the greatest evidence 
that there is a winner is if you look at where are the spoils. Isn't that right? Who got the spoils? Who got the booty? Who got the stash? Isn't that right? That's the evidence that there is a winner. And so we want to explore that a little bit. What are the spoils of Satan? Did Jesus obtain these spoils? Did he bind a strong man? Did he divide his spoils? And we want to see what that means. Let's go to Isaiah. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, chapter 26. Isaiah 26. This is an interesting prophecy. It's one of those prophecies that uh, perhaps is not very popular, but it's very significant to what we're talking about. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Isaiah 26, verse 19 says, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. That's a prophecy about a resurrection. Of who? A number of people, not just one person, right? And then it says, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body. Who was speaking through Isaiah, do you think? Christ. So Christ is saying, not only I'll come and be a savior to the world, I will die, I'll be resurrected. But when I'm resurrected, according to this prophecy, there are dead men who will also live. And when they, they will arise, awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Do you know about any event in the life of Christ where this prophecy was fulfilled? When he was resurrected. I don't think we need to go to the past. We all know Matthew 27, where it says, All the graves were opened, and many that slept arose, awoke. What was the significance of that? You see, who or what are the spoils of Satan? The dead. Isn't that right? Satan is the cause of sin. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, all the dead are Satan's spoils. You see, death, as far as the devil was concerned, was a one-way street. It was a dead end, literally. One way, you go in, you don't come out. And he claimed each and every one of those people that passed through the gates of hell, or through the grave, you know what I mean, through, through the grave, as his, permanently. Now we see that very, very plainly because you remember the story of when Moses died and then Christ came down to resurrect him. It's in the book of Jude. And it says there was a contention between Michael, the archangel, that's Christ, and between the devil over the body of Moses. You ever wondered what was the basis of that contention? We, we perhaps don't appreciate the significance of that event. I just want to give you an idea. When Christ came to resurrect Moses, that's what he wanted to do. He was going to resurrect Moses. The devil came up and said, excuse me, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you think you're doing? He belongs to me. You said the wages of sin is death. You have no right to resurrect him. That was a claim of Satan. Of course, uh, the Bible tells us that Christ said, you know, the Lord rebuked thee. He did not uh, bring against him a railing accusation. And he raised Moses based on what he promised that he would do. But this is the significance of this event. For the very first time ever in the entire history of the universe. Someone was going to be brought back from the dead. It had never happened before. That was the very first time. And up to that point, each one that passed through death, Satan had thought that his is his forever. Christ came and said, actually, no, I'm going to resurrect Moses. And I'm going to resurrect Moses based on what I'm going to do. And it's not only Moses who's going to be resurrected, but every other person who believes in me. Bad news for Satan. But Christ had said he would do that based on what he would accomplish here on earth. And so that's why there was a very great contention between Christ and Satan on earth. But when Christ accomplished that, and at the resurrection, now you have a whole host of people that were claimed from the grave, from the dominion of Satan. You don't see him arguing there anymore. You know why? He's lost and he knows it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, was the death knell of the kingdom of Satan. Amen. It was the death knell, and he knows it to the very core of his being. Because all these people that Christ pulled out of the grave, these were the spoils that he took and he divided. And the Bible tells us what he did with these spoils. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. 
The story gets better. Ephesians chapter 4. We're talking about the power of His resurrection. Isn't that right? Power of His resurrection. Satan trembles at the power of His resurrection, brothers and sisters. Ephesians 4. Chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Notice what it says. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Short verse. Speaking about Christ. When he went up to heaven, it says here, he led captivity captive. What's that mean? Some Bible translations say, he led a multitude of captives. That's a bit clearer. <laughs> he led people who were captive to one person as his captives now. And he led them with him when he went to heaven. So all these resurrected people that spent 40 days on earth, they went into Jerusalem and they witnessed that they were risen, that Christ was risen. And, and all these people, you know, sometimes we wonder who these people were. Uh, we're told that these people were actually faithful men from all ages. From the very beginning, until the time of Christ, from every age. In other words, there would have been people, possibly, according to that, uh, there would have been possibly people there who were giants from before the flood. And in the book, uh, in the book of uh, the book Desire of Ages, I think it is, it actually gives us an interesting qualification for these people. It says, all those who were raised with Christ in that resurrection were people who had sealed their faith with blood. What's that mean? Martyr. They were martyrs. So who's the first qualifier in that group? Abel. Now I'm not saying he's there. I don't know. We're not told. But he qualifies. So Abel was a giant, okay? And there were other faithful people, outstanding people. And who's the last qualifier in that group? John the Baptist. And we're not told, but that he qualifies. So they would have gone into the city, and for 40 days they witnessed that Christ is the Messiah. We are the evidence. We were dead. We are now alive. And on day number 40, there was a special rendezvous. As Christ was ascending on that Mount of Olives with his disciples there, and he started to ascend, uh, I can picture in my head, I don't know how it happened, but that's the picture I have, that simultaneously, wherever all these people were that were resurrected, all of a sudden, they also started to ascend. Because when he ascended, the Bible says, he led with him a multitude of captives. So they would have gathered together in the cloud, wherever that might have been, and they marched up all the way to the new Jerusalem. You see, brothers and sisters, this was the victorious entrance of the conquering king who has come, down, come back from earth with his trophies. And they come to the gates of the New Jerusalem. And in the book of Psalms, it records for us a song that was sung there. You know, open the gates that the righteous king might come in. And the angels reply, who is this king? It says, the king of glory. You're familiar with that? Psalm 24, I think it is. Somewhere there. That's, that's the victory song and the victory march of Christ when he returned from earth. He returned as a victor. Nobody needed to ask if he was successful or not. All they had to do was look at who's in his company. There were all these ex-dead people who were captives of Satan. They're no longer captives of Satan. Of course, they were resurrected as a token and as a type of all the others who also believe in Jesus, who would one day be resurrected if they should die. Now, Satan knew that very well. That's why the resurrection, brothers and sisters, is bad news for Satan. And it's good news for the believer. And we have been... Ignoring something that is so powerful when it comes to the resurrection. That's how Christ obtained the keys of hell and of death. When he appeared to John in the book of Revelation, he says, Behold, I'm he that was dead. Uh, I'm he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And have the what? Keys of hell and of death. That's the grave and of death. He has the keys. What's the evidence? He used the key and he opened many doors. The prison house of death, Christ opened at his resurrection. Not literally, you know, these are pictures. He didn't go with a key, but he obtained the right through overcoming Satan to restore to life all those who believe in him, even though they died. That's why Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even if you're dead, you'll live again. Hallelujah. That's why the Bible also tells us, 
that Christ came and that through death he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who were all their lifetime subject to bondage and fear. You're familiar with that verse? Okay, maybe not familiar. Let's go to Hebrews 2. We need to look at that. That's an important verse in light of what we're talking about because this is the practical application of what we're talking about. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2.14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that's Christ, also himself likewise, took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Mission accomplished. Notice the effect of that mission. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. What is the fear of all fears for the human race? It's the fear of death. You might stress, you know, maybe the job, the work, the house, the mortgage, the children. There's certain stress and fear, but it doesn't compare to the fear of when we're facing death. Christ conquered the fear of all fears. That he might deliver us from all kinds of fear. And that includes the fear and worry and stress that we get when we go through suffering. Even though we go through it innocently, God understands, but God says, don't worry. Look to the resurrection. All that suffering that's coming upon you by the devil, he's a defeated foe. Remember the power of the resurrection. That's what the resurrection is designed to do. It's to encourage us. It's to give us hope. It's to give us triumph. That's why Paul says in Romans, we are more than conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror? Only Christians can be more than conquerors. The highest attainment you can get in the world is conqueror. Christians can be more than conquerors. Why? Because we have a captain who defeated all the powers of darkness and made an open show of them publicly, triumphing over them when he rose from the grave. And that announcement gave Satan a very big headache that to this day he still has. We don't perhaps realize what happened to Satan at that time. Uh, let's go to Romans 1. This will give us a bit of an insight. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You're seeing a picture here, brothers and sisters? It's a powerful picture. We serve a conquering king. Many times we behave like defeated soldiers. Because we forget, right? The devil blinds us with darkness and we take our eyes off and we, we, we just moan and groan and, and, and it's hard going. God says, don't worry, I know there's suffering. Remember, we have a victorious king. Look to the resurrection. <laughs> Romans 1.4, here it is. Uh, let's read from 3, just so we can get some context. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. According to this verse, the resurrection from the dead declared Christ to be the son of God with power. Who was that declared to? Us. To us, and not only us, to all those who thought they won when Christ died, to Satan and his angels. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. You know, some people use this verse and say, well, Christ became the Son of God at the resurrection. That's not what Paul is dealing with. And to deny his true sonship, right? And, and they miss the whole point of what is being said here. He was not declared to be the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. The key here is power. The power of his resurrection. That was bad news. Let me uh, give you a bit of an insight here. And I find this description really amazing. Uh, before we read it, what's, what's the one thing that caused the demons to tremble whenever they saw Jesus? They always said it. You know, when a demon-possessed person uh, came into the presence of Jesus, sometimes the demons would speak, right? What's the one thing that terrified them? You are the son. We know who you are. Please don't do this to us. Or please don't cast, it out, cast us out here. Or please don't torment us. Or please, please, please. We know who you are. You're the son of God. And he never had to say anything. As soon as they see him, we know who you are. The demons have this phobia about the son of God. And that phobia was confirmed at the resurrection when he was declared to be the son of God with power. You see, the devil had a problem with the son of God from heaven. 
If you look, uh, the spirit prophecy brings that out very clearly. But we see that in the, in the wilderness, when the devil uh, met Christ face to face again in a challenge, the first thing he asked him was what? If you are the Son of God. He has a problem with the Son of God, with the Sonship of Christ. He hates that. And all through uh, the history of the controversy, the, the battle is between Christ and Satan over the sonship. You know, many times we don't realize that. We, we don't factor that in, into the great controversy. We talk about the great controversy being over the law of God and whether we will obey it or not. Uh, yeah, that's secondary. The issue is an issue. It's a question of authority. The devil said, I do not recognize the authority of the son. That's what it is. It's a battle over authority. And, and you see that because in the wilderness, when the devil told Christ, uh, you know, I'll give you all these things if you'll do what? Bow down and worship me. What's that mean? He wasn't just wanting Christ to bow down and worship him. In other words, the devil was saying, recognize my authority. It's a contest of authority. I don't recognize your authority. The authority that you have as the son. He rebelled against the authority of the son. And consequently, what's tied to that, of course, is the law. There's no question about that. I don't want someone to misunderstand my words and say, oh, you're doing away with the law and, and changing the issues. Sadly, today you're, you're more often misunderstood than understood. So I just want to clarify. When you recognize the authority of the son, you will obviously be in harmony with that on which his government stands. His law, obviously. That goes without saying. That's the ultimate recognition of his authority. And inversely, to disregard the authority of the son is, is to disregard his instructions, his law, his commandments. That's what he said. If you love me, keep. That's a recognition of his authority, of God's authority. That's what the issue is all about in the great controversy. And so uh, what happened at the resurrection of Christ at the grave is very, very significant. I want to read to you a statement here from Zara of Ages that I really like. It puts a lot of pictures in my head. And I want to hopefully have those pictures in your head. Zara of Ages 7.8.2. Notice what it says. When Jesus was laid in the grave, Satan triumphed. Did you know that? When the Savior died and was laid in the grave, Satan triumphed. Because Jesus died. Sin is the wages of death. The devil is the author of sin. So he triumphed. Say, uh, Christ had come under his dominion now in death. He dared to hope that the Savior would not take up his life again. He claimed the Lord's body and set his guard about the tomb, seeking to hold Christ a prisoner. Now his guard was both physical and spiritual. He got the Jews to go secure the, the grave with soldiers and with a seal. And he got every demon on duty report at the grave. You realize that? Every demon that walked the face of the planet was right there in Jerusalem to hold Christ as prisoner. There was a contest that was happening over these three days. Satan had marshaled all his troops. And that's what it says here. He said his guard about the tomb. He was bitterly angry when his angels fled at the approach of the heavenly messenger. When he saw Christ come forth in triumph, he knew that his kingdom would have an end and that he must finally die. That's what happened on that resurrection morning. And you just imagine, you know, here's Gabriel coming down with the commission to call Christ. And he told him, son of God, thy father calls. Isn't that right? And as Gabriel's coming down, every demon took off. Scoot. Out of here. And the only one that was left was the devil. And the devil stood there watching Christ come out of the grave. And he knew, game over. Not only that, but he might have heard the earth shaking and all these other graves popping open. And all these other people coming out. And he said, uh-oh, game over. I'm going to die. He had dared to hope up to that point that maybe, just maybe, there was some hope that he had won. The resurrection of Christ completely extinguished every hope and utterly destroyed the kingdom of Satan. Brothers and sisters, that's the power of his resurrection. Do we realize what the resurrection really means? Amen. That's what I'm hoping we can all realize and appreciate in a fresh light. The power of his resurrection. Let's go to... Uh, 
Let's go to another point here quickly, because when you look at the apostolic church, <clears throat> you find that many times in the book of Acts, the apostles were occupied with the preaching of the resurrection. That was a major theme. The resurrection, the resurrection. A lot. We don't have the same emphasis today as much, like I said, because maybe we've reduced this, this fact or, or this glorious event to a doctrine. And so we say, well, everybody believes it. Why talk about it? But we want to see the significance of that. But they were occupied with that because they understood something about the resurrection. They understood what happened. We perhaps have missed what happened somewhere along the way. You see, the, the contest really in the great controversy, it's not about you and me as such. It's about the authority of the sun. We are the spoils in that contest. We are the trophies. And of course, if you think about that, when Christ uh, took those trophies with him to heaven uh, and all these people, and these people are, are there right now. And that's uh, quite, uh, quite possibly the ones that John saw in the book of Revelation as 24 elders sitting around the throne. These are human beings that came from earth. So heaven regards them very, very highly. They sit on thrones just next to the throne of God. Why is that? They are precious trophies, evidences and tokens of the victory of the, of, of the Son of God over Satan and his kingdom. You know, when a person has a trophy, look, you know, in the back there, there's a cabinet, there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, sometimes people do that. If they have a trophy or something important, they, they want to collect it. and It's a prized possession. Isn't that right? We are that prized possession. You realize that? We are the tokens of victory of the Son of God. Are we really so in our lives today? This is the question. That's the challenge, really. Or are we tokens of defeat in our life today? Do we have the power of the resurrection? Or do we have the power of the defeat? That's the question. That's the challenge. Let's go to Romans. We'll look finally here, just as we close. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Speaking of Christ, it says, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. What's another word for justification? It's called justification by faith or righteousness by faith. When we're justified, we are made right. That's righteousness. Isn't that right? Now here it says how we are made right. By what? By his resurrection. He was raised for our justification. That makes it important, doesn't it? Well, what's the, what's the connection? What's, what's the link? You see, brothers and sisters, when I, when I looked at this, when I, when, I, when I studied this, you know, it dawned on me in a new way that I'd never seen before, the importance and the beauty of the resurrection. I fell in love with the resurrection. I thought, wow, this is such good news. You can't stop talking about it. No wonder the disciples couldn't stop talking about it. It is good news. He was raised for our justification. You see, what happens when we're justified or when we're made righteous? How are we made righteous? By faith. And what, what do we receive that makes us righteous? By faith. What do we receive? What do we... Jesus' life. That's what we've been talking about. The life of Christ. Isn't that right? Hello. Uh, the life of Christ is received by us by faith. You know, that's what makes us righteous. The, the, the Bible says in Galatians, if there was a law given that should give life, then righteousness would have been by that law. Isn't that right? If a law was given, or if there was a law that could give life, then righteousness would have been by that law. What's that mean? Righteousness cannot be obtained except by the reception of life for a person who is a sinner. Now, I don't go too much into detail about that, but simply this. The resurrection of Christ guaranteed for us that there is life and that that life is righteous. That's why he was raised for our justification. Jesus told his disciples just before his death, you know, a little while you shall see me, uh, you shall not see me, and a little while you see me. And then he told them, because I live, you shall live also. When did Christ live again at the resurrection? So now that he is living, 
we can live also. We can partake of that life. And that life is a righteous life. So he was raised, and the whole purpose of him being raised is so that he can give that life to us. He was raised for our justification. You see the connection? The Greek says it was the opposite of the word condemnation. Opposite of condemnation. That's very true in the Greek. Thank you. Opposite of condemnation. Let's look at Romans 10. Just maybe... It's, this is not just uh, this one verse that talks about it. Romans chapter 10. Let's just see how, just how important this is. Usually people, uh, when you talk about certain doctrinal aspect, sooner or later I find that people say, look, uh, is, is this issue salvational? And, and, and in their mind, that's, they want to determine if they should give it uh, their time of day or not. Isn't that right? Any topic. You talk to someone about the Godhead, oh, is this salvational? Because uh, if it is, I'll look, if it's not, and generally people, they have their idea of what are salvational doctrines. What about the resurrection? Is that salvational? Amen. You better believe it. Amen. Look at verse 9, Romans 10, 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. That is the salvational doctrine according to Paul right here. If you believe, that Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father, you have salvation. Well, why is that? You see, obviously, Paul is not referring to this mental ascent that most people do. We know that, uh, if I ask the question, everybody say, I believe in the resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection biblically? That's the question. You see, believing in the resurrection is not just simply assenting to the fact that, yes, I believe Christ rose. Believing in the resurrection is to experience the power of His resurrection. That's His risen life in you. That's what biblically believing in the resurrection means. And when you have that, and when you believe with all your heart in that, and you have it by faith, you shall be saved. Hallelujah. Raised with Him. Not only do we die with Him, we are raised with Him. And someone read the statement, I think it was Ahmed. Uh, the life that he laid down in humanity. He takes again and he gives to humanity. That's the resurrection. That's when he took it again. You see, when he rose the second time, brothers and sisters, he rose as the second Adam. He rose as the father of all those children that choose to believe on him. And as his children, we automatically receive his life, his glorious, resurrected, victorious life. Amen. And if you have that, you cannot be lost. You see here when it says believe in the resurrection, it's not saying when you have all these beliefs in your head. That's not what secures and guarantees your salvation. Your salvation is believed, uh, based on believing with all your heart that Christ is raised. In other words, He lives again in you. He is resurrected in you. You cannot be lost. That's what Paul is saying. Look at the next verse. Romans 10.10 10. Notice the connection here again Next verse says For with the heart man believeth unto what? Righteousness. Righteousness And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation In the previous verse he says If you believe with all your heart that he is resurrected And then he says For with the heart man believes unto righteousness So the resurrection is the foundation And the basis for righteousness by faith Isn't that right? And so when I saw that, I thought, wow, I never heard that. I never knew that. And I used to read those verses in Romans and think, yeah, and, and I never stopped long enough to think about it. Brothers and sisters, Paul wanted to know the power of his resurrection. He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the only way and means to obtain righteousness. The only way, the power of resurrection. So now I want to ask you and challenge you, I don't want to show of hands, but I want to ask you, do you believe in the resurrection? <laughs> you see, not everybody out there who believes in the resurrection will be saved. You realize that. Most Christians, sadly, we can't say all now. Most Christians believe in the resurrection. We know that most of these people are not necessarily going to be saved. So just believing like that, it doesn't work. Believing in the resurrection biblically is to experience the power of the resurrection. If you don't have that, you know what? You don't believe in the resurrection. 
The devils believe and tremble. The devils, yeah, the devils believe and tremble. Believing in the resurrection biblically is to experience righteousness by faith. New life. Victorious life. A righteous life. The life of the Son of God. So that's what the preaching of the resurrection is all about, brothers and sisters. So I hope and I pray that uh, you have seen a fresh glimpse of the power and the beauty of the resurrection. I know I have. And, and you know, it makes one not want to stop talking about it. Doesn't matter if all the Sunday keepers talk about it too. The power of the resurrection is the foundation of righteousness by faith. I pray that this will be your experience and this will be my experience, not only today, but from now and onward. Because that's what makes Satan tremble. Amen. Satan takes note of those who know what the power of the resurrection is. He has nothing with which he can defeat them. You realize that? That's why he's been busy trying to obscure this fact from God's people and steal away from us the powerhouse of the gospel. Anytime you have trouble, you have suffering, you have sorrow, you're going to look at that. We're going to look at that a little bit more tomorrow. Remember the resurrection. It undid Satan and his kingdom. Game over. I pray that it's game over for him in your life. Let's pray. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.